Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Midpoint. My guest today is a stand-up comedian and actress who turns 50 next year. There was a time when an actress turning 50 would be doctoring her wiki page and refusing to come on a podcast like this. But Kerry Godleman is positively embracing this period of her life. She's frank about her menopause, but is working almost constantly and on better and bigger shows all the time. She played the deceased wife of Ricky Gervais in the global smash hit Afterlife. It broke records. It was seen by 85 million people. But there is nothing starry about Kerry. I think you're going to like her a lot. Hi, Kerry Godleman. How are you? I'm very well. Hello. We met years ago on a panel show and then just last week we did Between the Covers. Yeah. And um, and I've always admired you and think you're fantastic. When you were talking, I thought, why have I never asked Kerry to be on Midpoint? And, well, and we were so... we were the same age as well. Exactly, almost. Yeah. So I was so happy that you said, well, actually, you're 49 next month, I think, aren't you? Yeah, I am. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, but we're both um, 50 next year. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah we're, we're 73 kids. Yeah. Um, do you feel at this age, like someone who's really hitting their stride and has got their kind of stuff together? (laughs) Some days, most days, not so much. I'm assured by friends in their 50s that it gets better in your 50s. Once you get over that hump, because I think the 40s are very turbulent, especially late 40s with the menopause and just sort of on the precipice of being on that, you know, big 5-0. And then once you've got that behind you, I'm led to believe... It gets really good. <laughs> and then you suddenly have all your energy back and certain things are understood. Are you struggling are you struggling with energy with menopause? Is yeah, that, is yeah. That, yeah. It can be very, very up and down. I can't believe how variable it can be. Like some days I just can barely function. And then other days I'm fine. Today I'm fine. I've got loads of energy. It's, it's that kind of not knowing quite how it's going to fall that can be a bit... Um, is that your biggest symptom or your most dominant symptom? Uh Energy levels, a bit of insomnia, headaches, but the HRTs manage that. The headaches are definitely under control. Not so much hot flushes, Hmm. not loads of brain fog. I think I had that before. (laughs) Lack of drive, things that used to be really important to me, seeming less so. And then things that are like kind of just normal day-to-day life can floor me. You know, Mm -hmm. you can just be suddenly excessively emotional about what used to be quite manageable things. And the HRT hasn't normalized some of those things yeah it has it definitely has has normalized some of it yeah but um, those around you noticed that yeah I guess so yeah my husband well I talk about it relentlessly (laughs) (laughs) he couldn't help but notice it no they were pretty um understanding because it's all been pretty discussed yeah so which is great for the next how old are your kids again 15 and 12 yeah it's great for that next generation because my kids are the same they're fully aware of what's going on they're 17 Uh, it just wasn't talked about I don't no. think in, in, you know, for our mums. and No, not at all. And my mum didn't do HRT and all that stuff. No. I think she was sort of smack in the middle of that health scare thing. So she mm. wouldn't have gone near it. And now I look back and think, well, oh, I wish she had. 
Yeah. <laughs> would, uh, so many, so many lives, relationships, families yeah. would have benefited from it, and and understanding. And I make sure as well to talk to all my male guests about it, and you know that they're and they're not squeamish. You know, and no, just totally. Don't... They it's just normalising be... it. It's in the news this week yeah. again, wasn't it? Yeah, it seems to be all the time. And, and as I did a thing last week called the, the Menopause Monologues, and as Sally Phillips opened hers with, she said, you're nobody if you're not having the menopause. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> she did this skit about women in their early 40s pretending to be in the menopause so that they could join the club. Which yeah. is... <laughs> I'm still amazed at how... Well, everybody watched that Davina documentary, so that was a bit of a game changer. But I am still amazed that I might occasionally chat to a mate a bit younger and they'll describe some of their, you know, life problems. And I'll go, have you thought that maybe you should get some HRT? And they don't, they're like, no, I'm not there yet. And you think, well, you, you probably are. And I remember that conversation being had with me. Mm. It just takes someone else yeah. to point out that that's well, where that, you're at. I remember hearing Dr. Louise Newsom, who's one of the, you know, one of the yeah. gurus talking on her podcast about the fact that she looks back and wishes she'd started after she'd had her last child at 43, I think, because wow, she realised yeah. that what she thought was stress juggling a big career and kids was actually the menopause or perimenopause yeah. or symptoms. And, you know, but but women in their early to mid 40s these days are still having kids, aren't they? So, yeah, no, quite. So your kids are at that great age, that lovely kind of teenage where they one day they're one way. They've got this incredible highs and lows, haven't they, where they come yeah. in a different person in the door. Are you experiencing that going yeah, on in the very house right much. now? The energy kind of shifting yeah. every day. And also just, I mean, I feel for them, actually, because it is it's a difficult time, isn't it? Teens? Mm. Maybe that's the unfortunate thing about us going through what we're going through while they're going through what they're going through. So um, like my daughter's having to look at sixth forms now and. It's just all these big things going on. And there's a bit of me that wants to say, don't worry too much. You, you know, you're still really young and yeah. life is long and you'll be okay. Your life doesn't hang on these decisions right now. But in some ways, they're led to believe it does, like their GCSE grades and the choices they make and yeah. things like that. So you, you, you kind of give them a lot of mixed messaging where on the one hand they're told it's very important, you must work hard, but don't worry too much, you know, <laughs> it'll be all right. So how do they feel about what you do? Because being an actress is one thing, but stand-up, I'm wondering particularly, kind of how they rationalise that and kind of process you, perhaps using them in material. They're very used to it because they've always known it. I've been, I was doing it before I had them, so it wasn't something that started in their memory. My son especially, he loves comedy. Like we went to Latitude this year and he sat down the front at the comedy tent all weekend and he really loves it and sometimes he gives me like oh you could do a routine about that and when I have used them in material occasionally they've said can you not <laughs> I did one whole routine that involved my son sticking a finger up uh, the TA's bum and he sort of <laughs> politely said can you not do that which is entirely reasonable and I said yeah that's a fair point I'll stop doing that now but my daughter she's fairly she's a bit cool about it I don't know if she's impressed she she keeps it well styled out but it's lovely when your kids start making jokes, isn't it? And they have yeah. their own sense of humour. And you, like my daughter's very subtle. And sometimes I go, gosh, she's really funny. But you just don't always, she doesn't do kind of, you know, bang all the time. She's not no. looking for laughs all the time. Oh, is a wonderful thing. I was chatting to an old friend today who's a comedian and she was sort of, she's been doing other stuff and getting back gigging. And she said she's really been enjoying it. And I said, if you can do it, it's like, it's stand-up's like a superpower. It's like, why wouldn't you want to do it if you can do it? Like, it's like having a invisibility cloak and not using it you're like just use it it's it's a lovely thing to be able to do and when you can see your children develop a, a sense of humor and use humor because it's such a an essential part of life especially 
with mental health to, mm. to manage, you know, stresses and mm. relationships and humor's really important, you know, and I, I can't imagine what it must be like to not have a sense of humor. It must be dilapidating. <laughs> as, as a midlife performer of comedy, does it get easier to the kind of, you know, when you're in your early 20s and you're going out on stage, it's a terrifying thing to do. Yeah. Does it does it get does that get easier? Definitely. The stage fright is definitely calmed down because there's a feeling of look, it'll be all right. Like the chances are it'll be right. But that that's from doing it for twenty plus years. But the the real nerves of being younger, I don't miss that at all. In any context actually. I mean even social anxiety or mm. um worrying about going for a job interview or an audition or something where the stakes or there's a bit of jeopardy mm. just that disproportionate anxiety I don't feel like that anymore I feel much more relaxed about that's things. age isn't it and that's and knowing, age and knowing that what's the worst thing that can happen exactly if you don't get the job or if it doesn't come off it's and the joke doesn't but, land on stage exactly it's all or nothing when you're in your 20s though isn't it it's just it's devastating and watching your kids have that you know when they sort of embarrassed and and self-conscious you and you want to go oh it doesn't matter it doesn't matter but you know they have to go through it go through it have to go through it and and also with you I guess because you've got these very parallel careers that you know people know you for acting they know you for being on telly and other forms then there's the stand-up going on at the same time so is it maybe because you know that that stuff's going well, it doesn't matter, I'll just keep, you know, the comedy is, is something that I'm not totally reliant upon. Yeah, maybe, you know. that's true. Because I think when I was just only an actor, you do really need to get those jobs. You know, they, they do make Pay a difference the between the bills getting paid or not. Yeah, but once I kind of could earn a living out of stand-up, it, it did feel like a life raft. It was like, right, I can I can do that. That's a lot of fun. It's very creative. I get a lot out of it. And if I get an acting job, happy days. But all along, I can be doing this. When I Googled your name and I just I always put images up because it's always interesting to see you, uh-huh. you've done so because you're in loads of different costumes. Right. I mean, I assume <laughs> you don't wear Wonder Woman costumes just for fun. You're in yeah. loads of different costumes. and you, You've done so much. You look like you've just worked consistently. And obviously your your CV attests to that as well. There's a lot of telly on there. There's a lot of yeah. work on there. Does it feel like you felt like you've continuously worked? Yeah, I do. I feel like as soon as I left college, I did bits and pieces of acting for a few years, like little bits and pieces. And then once I started stand-up, which was about three or four years after that, I just never stopped, really. I just, once I got a taste for the stand-up life, I, I didn't stop working. And yet when you did Afterlife, that must have given you an audience the size of which kind of and the reach of which that you yeah. hadn't really experienced before. No, that absolutely. Was such an enormous success, wasn't it? I know, extraordinary. I, it still um, it still takes me by surprise when people come and talk to me and recognise me because it it just has been so huge that show and it did change my work life because once you've done something as big as that, you do get invited to do other things. You know, it's just it's just the nature of the job. So. And also what was really lovely about working with Ricky both on Derek and Afterlife is that even though they're comedy shows, I had quite dramatic roles. So mm. I I think it allowed me to get more drama. I guess that's what I was intimating when I asked you, do you feel like you're in your stride? Because it feels like getting work like that in your mid to late 40s, yeah. like Afterlife, is such a, 
a big thing and yeah. actually it's great to do that when you're feeling empowered and and confident definitely and also working on a set when you're feeling okay in your skin is a nice feeling you know i can remember being on sets early days and I'd be very nervous and you wouldn't know who quite to talk to and if you had a question you didn't know quite who to ask and just feeling more relaxed in those kind of work environments you know it's a nice feeling. Um, you were a, a, a child of non-acting people non-showbiz yeah. people your life was a very very normal mm. life growing up in Perivale what yeah. did your parents think of your ambition were they completely supportive? Yeah they were actually they were very supportive they ever I don't recall ever anyone being negative about it even though they had no experience or background of that sort of thing was that the acting or the comedy or both both really both I mean I blame them anyway because they laughed at all my jokes and indulged me and when (laughs) you know when me and my friends would do shows they'd watch whereas most parents would just well no actually that's not true my sister she often used to click through Cosmopolitan while you were doing it yeah be like you're not looking at me I am I am carry on um so, yeah, I was always indulged and encouraged to do that sort of thing. And they, my dad, they'd drive me every weekend to drama clubs and come and see all the shows. And yeah, So it was always it. a life in showbiz for you? Yeah, I think so. I think there were times when I, when I was at drama school and first left, showbiz always implies the kind of like the business and the glamour yeah. side. But there were lots of times when I was doing drama work, but in a very different context, like with either young people or doing it for... Not drama therapy, but it's used a lot as a training resource in lots of different contexts. And I did that for a few years. Before I did stand-up, I was doing that quite a lot. Do you feel very much like it's this is a career for you, that you've got so much kind of confidence in what you're doing and also that the roles are there, that, that midlife isn't um, a worry in your career? So I think I, I definitely get more interesting parts as I've aged. When I was younger, the parts were very similar to each other or their function in the Mm. drama was similar but as I've got older they're much richer more interesting characters that I've been able to explore ranging from uh, an Avon lady to a barrister or there's just been more diversity in my Mm. casting and I definitely think that might be to do with aging whereas I I don't know why but when you're in your 20s it just felt to me maybe class plays a part in that because I, I I more working class parts I just tended to get one type of character whereas as I've got older it's definitely got more interesting and the landscape changed a bit as well works works better for women I think there is more work mm. I don't think we're there yet I think we've got a long way to go but even in comedy like when I started I, I started doing stand-up in 2001 so the 90s were still you know pretty uh a close memory and the culture of the 90s and women in comedy in the 90s didn't feel like a distant memory whereas now it really feels like a distant memory tell me Think- about that then tell because I've, I've in my book I've written a lot about working in sports telly in the 90s and I've just really? done an interview actually before I spoke to you with Nihal Arthur and he talked about the 90s so tell me about comedy in the 90s I think the 90s were there was lots to celebrate but there was also a lot of challenges with that decade and I think that women I mean I was raised fairly consciously like by a feminist to be you know have feminist thinking and I had to sort of almost disguise it through the 90s where feminism was only acceptable if it was ironic but it wasn't allowed to be sincere and it was quite hard work sort of putting all your uh politics in a sort of weird box and mm-hmm. being and confusing confusing feminism with like drinking blokes pint for pint and things of that nature and it, it, 
And I, I got away with it. I was quite good at being bolshy and, you know, mm-hmm. cocky. That's exactly the word I used, actually, about being... He, he, Nihal had asked me about how working at Sky, you know, how, what was my... I said, well, I was kind of a bit bolshy. Yeah. And I was probably a little bit... Bolshy. Yeah. But actually, I didn't really adhere or want to be the kind of person that I was having to skirt around to fit yeah. in with that thing. And and it was ironic because actually that was the ladette thing. And I was like, yeah. I'm definitely not that. And I want to retain the things that I think make me a woman and yeah. that I don't want to I don't want to mimic all these behaviors to just fit in with this you know this whole thing that's going on it was confusing when I look back now I think god that was it was quite a challenging time to navigate wasn't it I, I think so I think you had to really and that's where I think humor came in like you if you weren't armed with that sense of like I'm joking I'm just being <laughs> ironic you know when actually inside you're like I'm not joking I'm in a lot of pain <laughs> there was no there was nowhere to be earnest somehow I mean that could have been time of life that could have been being in your 20s as well we just I mean I was 16 in 1989 you know that's my whole late teens early adulthood through that decade um and I had a lot of fun I mean I probably drank too much everybody drank too much in the 90s it was there was a lot of hedonism and that whole lad thing was very toxic when I look Mm. back on it it was really toxic it was, and there was a lot of bad behaviour that, that I... A lot you know, of bad behaviour that you're meant to just laugh off and yeah. be like, yeah, yeah, whatever, I don't care, when you really did care, and it wasn't okay. Have you told your daughter, because I've, I've had discussions with mine about certain things, and she's just oh, incredible. What? They said this? They I know. did that? It's so different, isn't it? They, yeah. they live in such a different world. They're almost too much sometimes the other way where you're like, okay, you do need to lighten up a little bit. Yeah. And there is such a thing as irony. And sometimes people make mistakes, you know. But I think that's probably, the pendulum probably swings massively to try and get the balance back, doesn't it? And it will hopefully, they'll it'll come back a bit and they'll feel that they're actually really, really lucky. They've got, so, yeah. you know, they've got such opportunity to not have to navigate all of that as well, all that mess. Because but I still I remember... think young women have the same pretty balls up messaging and young men, but, uh, you know, stuff about body image and all that that's, stuff. Yeah, and that's worse because of social media, isn't it? That I think whole, so. Yeah, in their face all the time. In fact, yeah. the, social, the body image stuff is probably a lot worse, actually, because of that prevalence yeah. of stuff that's coming at them. Um, and I, I remember doing um, A League of Their Own with Joe Brand. It was one of the first panel shows I'd ever done. Uh-huh. And I was like 22, 23, just gone to Sky. And Joe's image on screen, and I've been a great admirer of her comedy, was, was bullshit, right? Yeah. And, so, and I thought oh, she's going to hate me. She's going to hate me. I'm this young girl kind of, you know, with a short skirt who's come from Sky Sports. And she was so generous and so lovely. And she gave me all these jokes. She said, oh, you should use this and you should do this. And it was, and she's so caring. And totally, you know, I mean, yeah. she, and she was a nurse, wasn't she? And she's got yeah. that kind of, you know, lovely, she envelops you. And, and then I realized kind of what was going on, you know, I thought, oh, so this is a, this is almost her comedy is like this ironic defense mechanism kind of in a way you know yeah. and um and it helped me then I suppose it helped me actually to realize the area that I was in it wasn't dissimilar to what was happening in comedy no, there were these women breaking through who were I suppose challenging lots of stereotypes but about. often panel show I think panel shows have enormously improved again they're not there yet I mean there's still women still are, are outnumbered by men but 
there was a time when Joe would have been the only woman on a lot of them. Things like Mock the Week and stuff like that. They, it took them so long to catch mm. up with women on the show and they've still never had more than two on any episode no but there's so much more women doing it now than when i started like way more i mean oh. it's completely different and that's lovely that's really liberating to go and do a gig and not be the say, only woman on the bill when you're, anymore uh, well are you now kind of aware that you're one of you know three or four on the bill if there's yeah. kind of 10 on the bill whatever definitely and, and it doesn't necessarily have to be international women's day but that's the other thing <laughs> That's the only other time you see each other. You're like, oh, it's March the 19th, isn't it? Or whatever date that is. March the 8th. March the, March 8th. the 8th. There we are. It's my son's birthday. I get them mixed up. Um, yes. So that's the only time we ever saw each other on the circuit. <laughs> Stay with me. We'll be back after this. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Do you have it in you, do you think, do you want to go on like a massive, huge theatre tour with comedy and have like a year where you just focus on that or do you like the balance no, of what you're I doing? I like doing both I really do I'm sort of coming to the end of a tour now and I've really enjoyed it but I'm sort of ready to stop and do something else I, I really like doing stand-up and sometimes I sort of flirted with like oh maybe I should wind it down a bit and focus on other things but I just think I'd miss it I do think it's a lovely like I said I do sort of think it's like having a superpower that you're not using you know and every time I've stopped for one reason or another I just miss it like the pandemic at the beginning I didn't miss it at all I was like oh god it's awful and then I and then I really missed it I, almost physically because there's a kind of you do get endorphins off it and I kind of missed just the hormonal kick Describe it. What's it like? It's a buzz. It's just, there's just something absolutely delightful about making a room full of people laugh, even if it is in a crass, silly way. It's not a. It's even if it's just from clowning or just saying something stupid. It's just really lovely to feel that wave of laughter, you know. And if you can do it for an hour and keep it going <laughs> with, you know, a bit of storytelling and a few sort of tricks. It, you do feel a bit giddy for for a good half an hour afterwards. There is a bit of a, a endorphin. Okay, what about when it doesn't go to plan? Well, okay. yeah, that can feel horrible. That can then that's lower than <laughs> you can go lower. <laughs> you, where you go up, you come down, sort of thing. But again, like I was saying earlier, I don't feel that as deeply as I once did. Like I think when I when you're trying out new ideas, you have to accept that some of them are going to tank and that's okay. And the longer you've been doing it, the more you can sit with that. I think when you're new, it's devastating and you're like, I've got, what am I doing? I'm just, you know, deluded. But after a while you go, well, actually in all of those failures, there there are some, there's some little nuggets that I might be able to just jig it around and make it work. And are your audience growing with you? Do you, see, do you feel like they're, you know, the, they're ageing with you? Yeah, you definitely. Like, like I've been asking audiences lately who's over 40 and they're all almost 80% over 40. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're my age. Or they're, yeah. They, and they, you're like, guys, we've only got 20 or 30 more years of this. Yeah, yeah like, <laughs> okay, let's just have an AGM. Um, yeah, definitely. I always kind of find it, I think because of shows like maybe Taskmaster and stuff like that, I pick up a few younger 
people come and watch the shows. But in the main, yeah, that is held a. It's 40 you plus. don't see you don't see many kind of seventy plus stand ups, do you? Or even well, maybe not, you too. That's a good are, question. They must still loads. be. They must no. But, well, it's not easy being on the road. No. Um, there definitely are a few, but I think what you'd end up doing is just shrinking the geography. Because if you live in London, there are lots of gigs. You can easily just gig every night if you want to. I do find it fascinating, the the, the kind of journey to become a stand-up, because, you know, even it doesn't matter how great you are, how how big you are, at some point you have to go back to being small again, don't you, to prepare. Yeah, like I've got a few definitely. friends who are comedians and um, John Bishop, um, I know quite well, and, you know, yeah. he'll do some smaller gigs and yeah. then you go back again. And in fact, I went to see Ricky Gervais at um, the Leicester Square he was doing a, some tryout material mm-hmm. and I uh, took my son with me because he loves his comedy and he said I can't believe like he's the most famous person I've seen in the flesh and he's only three meters away <laughs> and he was and he was holding cards doing yeah. you know, so he was he was properly trying stuff out which as a it was almost like peeking behind the curtain seeing how this stuff evolves that's yeah. one of the things I absolutely love is that uh, you know, even the McIntyres or whatever that play the big arenas, when that material is finished, they need to write new material and they'll be back in the small rooms working it up, you know, and that that is a very public failure if a joke doesn't work, but there isn't another system. So you just realise that, you know, it's a process. And sometimes the, the even the tiniest throwaway thing that you say on stage to cope with the disappointment of another bit not working can become a routine. I mean, I've ended up... you. I've got better as I've got older about just surrendering to the unknown a bit more in almost every context, (laughs) but specifically on stage, things can happen up there that I can't pre-plan. I have to allow that to be something that will only happen there in that that, space. That generally comes with experience, doesn't it? Very few people can just do that at the age of 20. That comes with that knowledge almost that yeah. you're going, it's going to be okay and I'm going to find something. I'm going to but find a way. But you've got to do a lot of stage time to be comfortable with silence. <laughs> In almost <laughs> any context, just being comfortable with silence takes, you know, a bit of um, emotional stability, doesn't it? And go, I'm not going to be rattled. So midlifers are listening to this um, and they're thinking, oh, I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to bring humour into my life more. I'd like to bring comedy into my life more. Or I'd, I'm not funny. Do you think everybody's got the ability to get funnier? Um, I, I think, yeah, I think it's a really useful thing to lean into. Can you coach it? I don't know. I think it's not so much about teaching people to be funny, but it's teaching people to not be scared of humour and Uh, to listen to other people and be open to noticing things that's the thing is when people there's nothing more awful is there than somebody thinking they're really funny and just dominating a room and being like listen to me which is essentially my job I've just described what I do for a job but (laughs) I mean in the context you're talking about just enjoying connections with your colleagues or different people in your life and yeah just listen and look and watch and be curious Kerry, it's a, a lovely uh, experience chatting to you always. And, and you. Uh, thank you. I really appreciate your time and Aww. best of luck with everything you're doing, thank all your you. amazing projects. Thank uh, you, can't wait. When are we going to see you on our screens next? Oh, I don't. Do you know what? I don't know. Whitstable Pearl's <laughs> coming back for season two. That's on Acorn at some Brilliant. point in the next month. And then, you know, bits and pieces. Thank <laughs> you so much, Kerry Godleman. So there you go. If you're worried about not being funny or you want to get a little bit more humorous, some good advice there from Kerry. I love the fact she's so looking forward to her 50s. She's made me more excited about my 50s. And the fact she's working so much speaks volumes about her talent, but also maybe an indication that the industry 
that appeared to value youth so much might be waking up to the power and wisdom that comes with maturity. Sadly, we couldn't get the diaries to work for our expert today with Kerry. So Dr. Julia Jones is our expert and she's got the floor to herself. Dr. Jones has spent her life in sports science and exercise, but when it came to her own personal feelings of well-being, she was aware as she approached her 50s that she put on weight and wasn't at her best. So she started to follow some of the biohacks she knew worked with elite sports people and elite military people, including fasting and cold showers, and changed her diet and worked on her gut health. And she's never looked back. As she says, she's the same weight she was in her early 20s. She's just written her third book on the topic of longevity. And we had a fascinating chat about perhaps the things we might all adopt to make sure we don't just live a long life, but one where we're mobile, healthy, and well. This is Dr. Julia Jones. Dr. Julia Jones, thank you so much for joining The Midpoint. How are you? I'm excellent, thanks. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I read a piece about you recently and I thought I've got to get this woman onto The Midpoint. You're perfectly placed to talk a little bit to our lovely listeners about how we can live longer, but also how we can live better longer, because I'm firmly in the kind of school of thought, there's not much point living to be 100 if you spend the last 30 years of your life on lots of medication, unable to move with your mobility restricted, and maybe even your mental capacity restricted. It it feels to me like if I'm going to live a long life, I want to live a good life. And I think if I'm not wrong, this is where you you come in. This is your speciality. Yeah. So I, I've become obsessed with this, um, I would say, <laughs> mainly because I was hurtling towards my own 50th birthday a couple of years ago. And I had come through kind of decades of sport and exercise science. I started off in that sector and I was telling everyone to join gyms and, you know, the, all the, the diet and fitness approach. And I became fascinated by the fact that 50 years of massive diet and fitness trends just hadn't produced any healthy nations. You know, as the Mm. the diet and fitness industry revenues were going up, average waistline size was going up, all the data was just getting worse and worse and worse. So I just started digging back into research and went on a fascinating journey myself, doing an experiment on myself. What did that involve? I cancelled my gym membership. And I stopped calorie counting and I spent the money on getting a biological age test and getting a gut test and buying a new sleep tracker so that I can start basically gathering data about what's going on in my underlying biology. 30 years ago, when I, as a sport and exercise scientist, I visited California and went to a US Navy SEALs base. They showed me how they were using music as a biohack to reduce anxiety, to boost exercise endurance and all of that. I've used music throughout my 30-year career as a biohack, but what I started to do was to look at all the other biohacks. So how does daylight affect it? How does different types of breathing affect it? How does cold water immersion affect it? Extreme temperatures. These are powerful things that target your underlying biology that's developed over millions and millions and millions of years. It just suddenly became apparent that, you know, we, we've created this fake fitness approach. All of these protocols came out of elite sport, which were about improving performance. And fitness and wellness are not the same thing. If you've got really poor gut health and your st- sleep quality is terrible and you've got cortisol 
constantly coursing through your bloodstream because you're stressed. If you want to go and do a 10K and improve your time, then brilliant. But that's not going to offset all the damage that is happening from all these other daily habits that dictate how long you're going to live healthily. So just to be clear there, you're not saying don't exercise. What you're saying is exercise will not negate really bad lifestyle habits. The whole word exercise... We've built this kind of vision around it of you've got to have an outfit on and you've got to go and do it in a gym or a fitness centre. You just need to stand up, right? Like standing up. The amount of effort that that takes to keep us upright against gravity is immense. Just standing up more often, going for a walk outdoors, just going and moving, moving around. It's all about knowledge is what I'm saying, is that people, we know more about how our phones work than how our bodies work. By learning a little bit about your biology, you can understand why that gym habit is actually negatively Mm. affecting your wellness. So can you put into kind of layman's terms for people what gut health means and how to get a more healthy gut biome? Yeah, and and this is, I really do believe we should be teaching this in schools. We've got this zoo of bacteria in the gut, and we need lots of different types of bacteria. Diversity is key. The way we eat with processed foods, and you tend to repeat shop, we tend to just buy the same old things over and over and over, choose the same recipes over and over and over. And that doesn't boost diversity. The new guidelines now is that we need to be eating at least 30 different types of plants every week to maintain a high diversity of bacteria in the gut. And that is linked to our immune system. That's linked to our metabolism. The gut-brain axis means that the gut microbiome is also driving mental health and cognitive function and inflammation, which is basically your biological age. So understanding the difference between a probiotic, which is like live bacteria that you're putting in, of of having some kind of probiotic food every day, but also prebiotic foods, so plant fibres and things like that, because those are the things that the bacteria feed on. Otherwise, you're putting live bacteria in and then they're just dying because there's nothing. Yeah, exactly. Because 30 is daunting. And actually, it can be done, you know, and you include things like seeds and nuts you can include into that, can't you, into into that 30. But it's just being a bit more interesting and more interested in in what you're putting in. And as you say, it's that repetitiveness. Um, So that's a massive biohack, isn't it? Or a massively impactful biohack that people can adopt. Yeah, absolutely. The most important, would you say? The one that has the most impact is fasting. Because we are eating too regularly, too often, you know, we're eating the wrong things, but we're also constantly eating and never really giving our biology the time to do the housekeeping work, you know, to, to, to not be digesting food and to just go and be able to put the cell back in good order. To do that, you need to give your body periods of fasting. And so even just doing the 16-hour fast, you know, Monday to Friday, I have breakfast at lunchtime you know I just I I don't eat for 16 hours overnight and are you still having lunch and dinner so they I just don't really call them any of those words anymore because it's just so you're having two meals effectively then so I'm having two meals sometimes I'm having one meal a lot of the longevity scientists are doing the one meal a day approach they're doing extended fasts and that really has a big impact on keeping the cells functional you know keeping them optimized 
a lot of people struggle with the no breakfast thing, don't they? Because they say they get to 10, 11 o'clock, especially if they work in an office environment, and then some cakes come out or some biscuits, and they're not eating a good, nutritious and balanced meal at 11 o'clock. They're just getting, you know, something very sugary that's going to send their insulin up and send their blood sugar levels going the wrong way. Should they therefore, if they're going to have a breakfast, be eating a high protein breakfast or should they be having slow releasing carbohydrates? What's your experience tell you? Anything that veers away from our sugar cravings is, is essential. We're all addicted. And the office environment is really tough because we've created that culture of, you know, rewarding people with sugar. Every meeting I go into, even the NHS meetings, you know, the coffee and tea and the biscuits come out. And because that's just the norm, we, we've normalized mm. it. Diversity is, is crucial thing and sugar's not bad you know if you look at the hunter-gatherer societies they're still eating a lot of sugar they, they eat a lot of honey they have a high diversity of gut bacteria compared to us in the our kind of western mm. culture so if, if fasting and then the diversity of what we're eating are two very important things clearly you've mentioned cold water cold showers just explain scientifically what a cold shower does for people well, it's an excellent opportunity to practice your breath work, if nothing else. So to extend the exhales, to try and stop the sympathetic nervous system from engaging when you have that sudden change in temperature. And so to keep control of that, to help train that autonomic nervous system to maintain a parasympathetic tone, to try and reduce stress chemicals. It's better in the, in the morning and in the daytime because at night you really want your body to naturally fall the body temperature so that you go into that kind of sleep runway. There are some really interesting studies that have mm -hmm. shown how people are, have far less illness and colds and things like that if they are doing cold water exposure somehow, whether that's, it might be sauna and plunge pool, it might be sea swimming, it might be showers. Showers are the easiest one for everyone because it's easy mm -hmm. to access. And is there anything else while you're here that, that you think we should be adopting that people currently are perhaps unaware of? Anything coming down the track? For 30 years, I've been hammering home the message about the power of music as a biohack because the ears lead to the brain. And so every sound is having an impact on the autonomic nervous system because the brain is deciding whether we're in danger or not. So music in particular is a really easy way to tell your brain that you're, that you're safe, to slow breathing down, to slow brainwaves down. And we've positioned music as entertainment, but listening to, to music can really help boost sleep quality. Listening to music can act as a metronome when you're doing breath work. So is a certain type of music that people should be heading towards to create those sensations in the body so calming music is more likely to represent the sounds of safety to the brain you see spa music just makes me feel anxious <laughs> <laughs> i always think when i'm in a spa i was like what, what is yeah what yeah. is this noise i'd much rather listen to classical music I was, yeah. can you turn this off please it's actually making me quite stressed so there is fasting Increasing the diversity of what we eat 30 at least different plants and vegetables yeah. the music and cold water, and and then we'll live to be a hundred. Yeah, is that the deal? Be beyond a hundred. Well, no, we'll live. We'll live healthily <laughs> to a hundred. That's what that's what we want to achieve. Yeah. So, 
Yeah. That's the aim. That's the aim. And yeah. so your latest book um, is F-Bomb, Longevity Made Easy. And you talk about all these things in there at, at more length and, and greater detail. Yeah. I've tried to simplify it and and try and make it easy to understand, but also easy to adopt. And a lot of this stuff is free. And, you know, we're, we're living in a time now where yeah. everything is going up. All the bills are going up. You know, all this stuff's going up. It's reducing to two meals a day or one meal a day I, I i saved a lot of money when i changed to these habits and i i dropped to the weight i was in my 20s i haven't been this weight since i was in my 20s well i i think um i think one of the reasons i i, I was really interested in doing freeze the fear was because i knew that when i came out of there talking about breath work and cold showers was going to be a win-win in terms of you know then they're accessible to everybody yeah. so it, it is you know we're not talking now we're not kind of sitting here peddling expensive gym memberships or yeah. uh, trying to get people to sign up for huge you know kind of long lasting courses or anything like that and and just to say as well movement is clearly very very important so I yeah. guess how you do that is up to you whether it's formal exercise whether you love running in nature whatever it is that's still very important it's about movement and for some people that's dancing you know, it could be all ki- all kinds of stuff. Just one final question. Um, in we're we're of a certain age, and this podcast speaks to people of a certain period of life. Is this? Do you think we're all thinking more about it? Obviously, because we we become aware of our mortality. Should young people be adopting these practices? Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't mean that. Oh, you know, you can never have any chocolate, or you can never drink, or you can never have a curry, or it, it, it's. I do all of that at the weekend. Right? I I changed my routine Monday to Friday, and then at the weekend I do different things. So if if you can make that part of your normal lifestyle mm. younger, then it just becomes normal. I don't even think about these habits now. You know, I go out early to get mm. day, daylight in my eyes as early as possible to boost sleep quality and you know regulate that circadian timer i have later breakfast i have cold shower i I don't even think about it now that it's the normal habits and it's the daily habits that make the difference in the end thank you so much uh dr julie jones it's been fascinating thank you Some really interesting ideas and theories from Dr. Julia Jones there. I already love the cold showers, tick. I try hard uh, to get a varied diet, eat loads of vegetables because I'm really, really interested and have been for a long time now on gut health. Fasting, that's the area I'm not so strong on. I do love my breakfast. I'm not sure I could go all the way to lunchtime, but maybe it's worth trying. Her latest book, F-Bomb, is out now. So go check it out because she goes into a lot more detail, obviously, in the book about the science behind her thinking and, of course, suggested foods and diets and things that you can follow. Thank you so much to Dr. Julia Jones. Thank you to Kerry Godleman. Thank you to Rethink Audio for producing this podcast. And thank you to you for listening. I love your feedback back as well so go to the Facebook page ask questions tell me things that you want to hear on the podcast as well and I'll see you next time hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.